I'm Charlie Wilmot. I'm David Todd. And welcome to the Bucks Dugout Podcast. Welcome to the Bucks Dugout Podcast. He's Charlie Wilmoth. I'm David Todd. And the Pirates 2012 season is over, Charlie. 79 and 83. And I know one of the things we wanted to do on this podcast is go back to, I think, maybe our second or third podcast right around opening day when we made all sorts of predictions about how the Pirates would do. I know you've had a chance to listen to it. I haven't. How silly do we look? We don't look that silly, but maybe before we get into that, I wonder what's your what's your mindset in terms of having gotten through the the season. For me, it feels like this sense of like accomplishment somehow, as if as if you know, I as a fan, just by having watched the games, like really achieved something. So I feel like it's like this: hey, we did it. <laughs> you know, even though <laughs> even though we had nothing to do with what happened on the field. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess I, some of it's maybe a personal thing, but I guess I feel a sense of exhaustion and a sense of relief. The 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 thing that I've been talking about on my radio show, and I think this is maybe the most interesting topic for me, and it may not be for you, and I don't know if it would is for my listeners, but it just feels like uh, the the, uh, the fact that the Pirates didn't win 79 games in a linear fashion has made it an extremely frustrating and disappointing season because – Certainly the hopes of the fan base were uh, taken to new heights in, in early August. And not only did it look like they can win more than 81 games, and we, people can be done with the frustration of hearing with that, which is not something that weighs particularly heavily on me, by the way. But it's a team that might actually compete for a playoff berth right, playoff berth right to the end of the season. And to some extent, they actually did that, even though they collapsed. And we've all heard the epic proportions of the collapse. Uh, they were in contention for a playoff berth with you know three weeks to go, legitimately, when Milwaukee came to town in early September. Uh, and then they got swept, and that was kind of the final maybe knife in the back for the fans. Charlie, for me, the fact that they won 79 games, that's the most wins they've had in any season since 1992, tying the 1997 club. Is, is something of an achievement, but it is so diminished by the way it happened. And I'm just, I just continually ask, is that important? Is it important how it happened, and should it be diminished because of the nonlinear fashion in which it happened? Well, I mean, if somebody feels something based on the way the season played out, you can't really, you know, dismiss that. You can't say that it doesn't matter what they, what, what they feel. And I can't blame anyone for feeling a particular way. Just in terms of of the trajectory of the organization as a whole, though, I mean, you know, and when you're evaluating how how the organization, how healthy the organization is, how Neil Huntington is doing, I don't think that the the collapse really means much of anything. And when we look back on what what we projected at the beginning of the season, uh, you said they would win 69 games. I said that they would win 70 to 3, 70, 73 to 75 games. So we were both, it turns out, you know, a little bit pessimistic in terms of how the Pirates actually ended up playing. So you know, taken from that vantage point, I mean, things have gotten better. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly the, the stance I took is w- when people talk about, when people argue about this, and one of the things that's been unfortunate that I think Twitter has exacerbated is there's no there's no middle ground now. You either have to be all for the Pirates and the front office, or you have to be all against the Pirates and fire everybody and it's, you know, it just simply has been exacerbated to no end by Dan Kovacevic and just the way it is. And if you say something or make an argument on one side or the other, 
then you know you're you're a money ball person or you're all 100 pro front office or you're not and, and that's unfortunate that the dialogue has taken that tone and i don't think it has on buck's dugout which is great and, and so i guess the way i would say is yes i think they achieved a lot my question is if when i look at clint hurdle and i don't think there's any way you fire the guy when he's been there for two years and there are 22 games of improvement seven of them this year from 72 to 79 i i just am frustrated by the fact that i think that he can do a better job of managing the game in game situations and i keep coming back to it but i, I really think it can be done much better than he did it and having said that i i do think he's a, a great locker room presence but it was interesting for me to also hear john parado who has an axe to grind with the pirates call the pirates liars and say that guys in the locker room may have tuned him out i mean very strong words uh, which I don't know. I don't know that there's any evidence of it than the losing record, but uh, these are interesting things that are coming out of the media where things seem to be a, a bit vengeful toward the organization. Well, I mean, I think that the the organization has really burned some bridges with people in terms of how they've interacted with the media, and that's that's what you see coming out a lot of the time. I, mean, I think you're what you're what you're really seeing when you see these incredibly vituperative posts from from people who are within the pittsburgh media is that for one thing they had this access to access to this thing twitter that they weren't really a part of a few years ago that allows them to to you know broadcast their thoughts uh, at any given second without the aid of an editor uh and then that's one thing and then that's the other thing is that is that i think the the pirates media relations have been i mean from what i can gather you know so bad uh, over the past few years that that a lot of the Pittsburgh media is taking out those frustrations on the team instead of instead of you know doing their job and, and giving us the facts and, and giving us analysis. Uh, I, th- I think that's fair to some extent. You and I are both reading things into that and, and don't aren't as close to that kind of situation. But that's that's probably a, a, a pretty good assumption from from the information that we've gotten. Uh, well, let me ask you now. Here we are, seventy nine and eighty three. Uh, the, the Greg, it's been announced that Greg Ritchie, either on his own or with gentle prodding, is now going to go to George Washington and his alma mater. Do we know that was there prodding involved? Do we know that? No. Um, okay, we're just we're just speculating. I, I would here. certainly speculate in any situation like that where there, it's a possibility that that existed. Sure. And you know that job comes up. It's his alma mater. He's 48. He can probably coach there for the next 10 or 15 years if he does a reasonably good job and and retire and and have, <clears throat> have that situation and maybe that's something that he can very much look forward to. I don't have any idea how much he got prodded. It was suggested to me, and I, I would certainly not suggest that that couldn't be possible because I was one of the guys who, in in early June, said if nothing else, fire the hitting coach because of the way the approach of this team is so bad. So. I would think that that's a possibility, but that's one thing that's been happened. Charlie, do you expect to see anything else happen? I, I don't, uh, you know, no. I, I mean, there may be some small things. I'm not really sure, but uh, but we already know. I mean, or it's been reported at least that that Neil Huntington and Kyle Stark and Greg Smith are are safe. And you would think if they if they were really dissatisfied with the way things are were going, they would they would certainly start with with Greg Smith as. As you know, the first person who would probably would probably get the axe. Apparently, he's not going to, so I, I doubt they will. I mean, and just you know, like you said, in terms of, of Clint Hurdle, it's it's he's kind of become a frustrating figure in Pittsburgh. But like you said, it's it's difficult to fire somebody after two years uh, when there's been such huge improvements at the major league level. I guess I guess the question there with regard to Hurdle would be, a team can improve by 22 wins over 
over two years, and they can fire their relief pitcher. You know, they can fire their middle reliever or their second baseman for not playing well enough, right? So why is it that we can't fire a manager for for not being competent? You know, regardless of the fact that the players in the field are better than they were a couple of years ago. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I guess the the question of that is is what percentage of the job do the fans see? Right. Do, do we think that we see eighty percent of the job, or do we actually see fifteen percent of the job? And so in that case, if it's 15, obviously, then there's a lot there that we're not able to evaluate. So that, I guess that's how I would come down on the point. I would just want to say, if, if I were running this team, I would want to be sure that after every game, regardless, there were 20 minutes spent. In some games, it will take two. In some games, it may, in most games, it may take two. In some games, it'll take half an hour. But going through the decisions and why, or maybe re-simulating the games uh, over the course of a month in the offseason and going through the decision-making process and why Clint did things. And every time he says, well, you know, in that situation, it was a gut feel. Literally write it down, circle it, say we're going to come back and look at the end of the month, at the end of the year. Uh, Hopefully they did that this year. And you say you made – you know, 300 decisions over the course of the season that were gut feel or went against the percentages. And, you you know, they didn't work for you 192 times. And that's too many because 200 of those should work for you. And instead you had 200 work against you. So that's, uh, that's enough decisions that the impact games. And if five decisions or if 15 decisions equals a game, that was six games that uh, were impacted there. And, you know, you have to do a better job at that or, or we're firing you. But that's the kind of, I, Hopefully, there's some kind of uh, whatever the right word is. I'm drawing a blank on accountability. Yeah, well, or simulation, simulation that can maybe show him and improve upon his decision-making processes. Right. I, I mean, I, I totally agree with that. And I guess what we're both responding to is just seeing this guy being such a brutal tactical manager down the stretch, and also, you know, make, make a ton of very strange decisions with regard to who gets playing time, uh, including in these last couple weeks. So you're you're certainly right that there's a lot of aspects to this job we don't see. It may be that that you know Clint Hurdle has more of a role in the Pirates improving than than we do see, and if so, that's fine. But it, it is strange to me that. To see, you know, for example, uh, Manny Acta get fired uh, twice, you know, by the Nationals and then by the Indians, you know, mainly because he was just in brutal situations both times uh, and was really just trying to deal with the talent he had. It, it just seems like the, the the manager is 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 always, you know, fired as a result as a as a scapegoat for for whatever the situation is in terms of you know a serious analysis of how good a manager this guy actually is. Yep. Yep, and and uh, I, we haven't gone through fully this minor league thing, and this this particular podcast probably isn't the time to go through it. But very interesting, different takes on whether the Pirates have a good minor league system or not. I'll make a little plug for anybody who hears this on Wednesday, on Thursday. Keith Law will be on my show, I think two forty Eastern time, oh, cool. and and I'll talk to him about this stuff. We'll get into some of the nuts and bolts of it, and I'll have Jim Callis on sometime next week and and get some more national perspective because. Uh, Tim did write an article today that talked a lot about um, the depth of the system in terms of how a lot of guys were named in the top 20 players in the various affiliate leagues. And that's certainly a positive in terms of what people outside the organization think of the pirate system. And then you have uh, you have you had Bob Smizek write an article today or yesterday where uh, a lot of what's written is the pirates get uh, discounted for the top picks that they've made. They say, you know, if you exclude these guys, if you exclude these pitchers or you exclude the Latin American guys, they don't have a good system. 
I don't think anybody's argued that Neil has done a fantastic job in the draft. And I think, uh, I think we can point to 09 and say that it's almost been a complete washout, a, a disaster. But to think about 10, 11, and 12 and be passing evaluation on that and discounting the top picks, I think is just not the right way to do it. Well, I mean, I think there is something to be said for you know it not being that hard to get a, a, a real talent in the first two picks of the draft, which I think uh, a lot of that that uh, criticism is is focused on. I I think that but, you know, but the point is that it shouldn't be criticism of that. It just is what it is. Well, right, but I I, I guess what I what I have said in, in uh, about that is is. You know, fine. That that just is what it is. But they've also been spending a lot of money outside the first round of those drafts, and they haven't haven't got a lot to show for it. But I think what a, a lot of the discussion in 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 the media recently is focused on is is you know trying to walk this fine. Basically, what the, the the situation is from my perspective is that it is a good system. It is a good farm system. It's above average, uh, but it's not as good as it could be. And I, I think sort of people are having trouble sort of walking that line between admitting that it's good, but also criticizing it for, for, for what it could have been based on the draft positions and the money spent and really just falling too hard on, on one side of the fence or the other and saying, oh, actually, it's not a good system. And Littlefield's drafts were, were somehow better, which is, is really just, you know, beyond ridiculous, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's a good point, and I think hopefully I did that reasonably well tonight on the radio, and we'll hear what some national people have to say. So, all right, Charlie. So here, here they are. What, what else uh, in in terms of our poppycock observations from <laughs> well, April first do you have for us? Well, one thing you were saying a, a bunch right off the top is that there were three automatic outs at the bottom of the order in um, Clint Barmas, Rod Barajas, and the pitcher, and of course you turned out to be dead right about that. Okay, I'll pat myself on the back now. Give me a give me one I completely. completely <laughs> well, uh, okay. R- relatedly, um, you suggested that that Jamaico Navarro might be the starting shortstop by August fifteenth. Okay, well, so I'll, I'll give myself half credit there because my my expectation was Clint Barmus was going to fail miserably. I, I think you get three quarters there. That was that was pretty good actually. I mean, the Navarro thing specifically was wrong, but everything else was dead right. Yeah, and I liked Navarro, and I'm a little bit interested to see if he has any future with the organization here on the 40-man or anything else because he's a guy who clearly we saw very quickly that they weren't willing to consider him as a shortstop going forward. But he put up decent OPS uh, later later than when he was down in Indianapolis, but yet didn't come up at the end of the season to be on the 40-man roster. And there were times when he would have been a better alternative, I think, coming off the bench than some of the guys that did. Right, I mean, uh, you know, better possibly a better pinch hitting option than than Eric Fryer or whatever when you have that that fourteen inning game. Right, so I I think that you know your concerns about about Barajas and and Barmas from the beginning of the season and a lot of people shared those concerns um, turned out to be right. I think that we've probably I mean we we've certainly gotten to the point where Clint Barmas is actually an underrated player due to the trajectory of, of his season and and the degree to which people are undervaluing defense. The Pirates had a, a good infield defense this year and Barmas was really the key the key part of that and he also, you know, you know didn't hit a whole lot but ended up hitting a lot better in the second half than he did in the first. Yeah, I think the, you know the numbers in August and September were certainly acceptable and with that kind of glove if you were to put out that production with a 650 to 700 OPS, you'd live with it. And I, I the, the kind of analogy I made is it's a little bit of the 1970s, 80s model where you got uh, a, a weak hitting, slick glove shortstop. And if, again, if you've got seven other positions filled with quality at, at bats, you can live with that. The problem is the Pirates 
pretty much had three or four positions of that, and they just had too much of the other way and uh, leading the charge with Clint Farmas. Right, he's be, he's become uh, Adam Everett or something like that. So, so I guess I'll get, I'll give you another shot at this question. So, who's going to be the starting shortstop next July? Well, that's a good question. That's, that's a, I, I mean, that's it's a tough one. Yeah, no, but I think it's a fair question. I I, I would assume it'll be Barmas, um, but I probably uh, that's the day he gets the, the, his last start is July first. If it if it is remotely compared to the first half of this season, I don't think the fact that uh, he'll be a free agent at the end of 2013. There's nothing to look forward to, and to sit for you know and wait for 300 good at bats after 300 terrible at bats doesn't make sense. Next July, if the team is well, whether or not the team is competitive, the point will only be again: is it uh, some combination of Jordy Mercer, Chase Darno, and Josh Harrison who is in there to fill the bill? Because that that may just leave you scratching your head again. Anyway, hopefully, right. Whoever the Pirates bring, they will bring. In, I would imagine a somebody who they hope performs better than Bobby Crosby, but maybe a Bobby Crosby type, a guy who's an experienced major leaguer to be an alternative, a Ronnie Cedeno type for God's sake. <laughs> right, bring in Ronnie Cedeno to be the backup to Clint Barmas. That would be hilarious. Yes, that would be. <laughs> but I think you're right. I mean, I, I think that you're, you're probably not looking at the Pirates pursuing a starting shortstop this offseason, but potentially bringing in someone like that who can soak up a few hundred at-bats and not be embarrassing in, clay, in, in case Clint Barmas gets off to the kind of start he got off to this year. I, I think that's something they'll, they'll definitely think about. So you also said, and, I, and this is it, then I'm done picking on you, uh, but you also said that uh, you weren't sure if, if Andrew McCutcheon could be a 310 batting average, 380 on base percentage type of player. That, that to me seems actually reasonably uh, astute at the time. And Andrew McCutcheon <laughs> has shown that he can hit for average this year. But you know what? Andrew McCutcheon, you know, we laugh because we think about him hitting 372 in July and he's going to finish the season at 327. And again, we had a huge second half collapse from where he was. Now, it wasn't as extreme as last year, and I actually meant to be pulling these numbers up earlier today, and I never got around to it. But, you know, McCutcheon, one of the faults that we all have is, you know, we blame the, the when a, a very good team or a team we have higher expectations for does poorly, we blame the best players. Right. And it's not the fault of A.J. Burnett and Andrew McCutcheon that the Pirates didn't reach 500, but it is the fault of A.J. Burnett and Andrew McCutcheon that they didn't stay 16 games over 500 because my argument has been that all the guys around them aren't very good and they were never very good this season and they were never very good the whole way through. But Andrew McCutcheon was a guy who was the best player in baseball for two months. A.J. Burnett was going to win 25 games and we can add a couple other guys into that mix because guys got hot at the same time and Garrett Jones and Michael McHenry and Casey McGee. But, uh, you know, you say... Those the whole reason it was unsustainable wasn't that they didn't add the right guys at the trade deadline wasn't because uh, X Y or Z it's because Andrew McCutcheon couldn't hit 380 and 50 home runs during the season and Burnett wasn't going to win every start and and you just add a couple more points to that and that's it yeah James McDonald I mean that, that's that's a big part of it and so so yeah. really I mean uh, McCutcheon had OPSs of of, of 1096 or higher in May, June, and July, and then in August he drops off to a 693 OPS. Comes back in September and hits pretty well, um, but that that really puts the Pirates in a tough spot, especially with with you know a, a whole lot of the rest of the team. I mean, most of the rest of the team besides Garrett Jones not really hitting a whole lot at that point. 
All right, let's put you put you under the the microscope here. And I, I you beat me a little bit. You were a little bit closer on the wins. Uh, what, what what other what other wonderful lines did you have? I the, I think my my best one, by which I mean my worst one, was that I wasn't sure whether whether Jason Grilly or Chris Resop was the better pitcher. And I'm sure you'll 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 love to gloat on that one. <laughs> well, I mean, I I you know I love Grilly and Grilly. Grilly, he's a very interesting guy, and, and, and we should do another uh, podcast next week talking about the free agency situation because there's just too much to cover here as a season-ending recap. But uh, the Pirates identified Grilly early on as the excuse me the eighth inning guy, and Juan Cruz is the seventh inning guy, and I think they handled. Uh, I do think again for the third year in a row, uh, the bullpen was was well managed. The right guys were in there. They generally did a good job. I don't think Clint butchered the bullpen as much as some others. Uh, they cut bait with Juan Cruz at the. I, well, I remember telling you in June that I thought Juan Cruz was a was a DFA candidate. So, yep, you you did. And uh, and he, he I think they did the right thing. You'd like to see a little more consistency out of guys like Resop, but Hughes was a, a good find, and I think Watson's a bit underrated as a as a guy who has a, a good potential in the pen. So I do think the big obviously the big interesting thing for the bullpen is how do how, where do Hanrahan and Grilly end up, and under what kind of contracts and. So, Hanrahan's going to make probably go from 4.1 to 7 million if they go to arbitration and don't move him in the offseason. Gurley's essentially a, a major league free agent. Again, the, the, you know, Hanrahan was a useful, more than a useful pitcher. He pitched well for the Pirates. He gave up more home runs this year. That was an issue, and it came back to bite him a few times. And again, uh, right here in the last week of the season. But the the point being is, what are you going to get for Joel Hanrahan now, and will you get more at the trade deadline? And I would like to have seen it happen a year and a half ago. We'll never know the answer. But do you think they should? Do you think they should move him in the off season if you get what you consider an equitable return, which is not going to be, let's say, is not a major league starting left fielder? Yeah, I think you you have to uh, think about that. The, the problem is, it it seems to me that that time when teams usually really bite on those kinds of deals tends to be at the trade deadline and the Pirates haven't been in the situation, the right situation in the last couple of years in order to make that kind of move or, or uh, you know, in order to make that, that kind of move a really attractive one. Um, but if they, if, you know, if they can get a good offer for him at this point, given what he's going to be making and when he's going to be eligible for free, for free agency, I think they've got to consider it and, you know, hope that, that some arm uh, that they, they have, you know, in the high minors right now, or or someone else can can make his way into the into the closers role. It really is shocking to look at if you look at Grilly and Hanrahan, their numbers through the season, and this is without today's game. And I don't think either of them went. I didn't see the last inning, but Grilly with a 2.91 ERA, Hanrahan with 2.72. Grilly went 58.2 innings. Hanrahan went 59.2. Grilly gave up 45 hits. Hanrahan 40. Grilly gave up 19 earned runs, Hanrahan 18. Grilly gave up seven homers, Hanrahan eight. And then the difference is in walks and strikeouts, and you'd think that would go Hanrahan's way, but it doesn't. 20 walks for 22 walks for Grilly, 36 for Hanrahan, 90 strikeouts for Grilly, 67 for Hanrahan. And in all of that, believe it or not, uh, Hanrahan comes out up with a uh, higher ERA plus of 138 versus Grilly's 129, even though Grilly also has the better whip. So. That's kind of surprising when I see everything seems to make sense until the ERA plus number. But shockingly similar numbers. But, of course, one of them's pitching the eighth and one of them's pitching the ninth. And some people think those are very different things. Yeah, I think that there, you know, there are probably pitchers who shouldn't be pitching the ninth. But that number is smaller than most people seem to think. And so the, the whole closer thing is, is really less rare than, than most of the mainstream media thinks it is. 
any what, what what if you had to pick out one singular positive surprise for the season uh is there one um well I i'll mean, keep your mind when you think about it for saying clearly neil walker and after a after middling start uh what he did in june july and the the bit he played in august uh was very impressive he i think he had four home runs you know as he entered June and I, I was calling him a mediocre shortstop at best, and I think what he did after that was very good. Uh, you know, in his, he had only played 129 games, 14 homers. He had a, a 342 on base percentage, which has always been reasonably solid, and his slugging picked back up. Now, not necessarily over the top at 768 OPS, but I, I he really had two good months there and impressive. He's 26. There's room for improvement. His defense is fine. It's not good. It's not as good as some people, I think, think it is. But it's not atrocious. And uh, so for me, I, that was a real, very positive sign. Yeah, that I would go with with Garrett Jones. Just you, you pick him up as a minor league free agent from the Twins a few years back. I would never have seen that he would have a 20, 27 season or a twenty seven home run season in him. And you know, for long stretches of the season, it really felt like he was the one guy sort of keeping things going to the extent that they were still going. Um, so, I mean, definitely the you know, biggest... And, and by the way, that you know, somebody made that signing. Yep, that's Huntington. So, yeah, I mean, definitely a, a, a really nice surprise. And, and I think, you know, honestly, if, if if Huntington had made a couple more signings like that somehow, I mean, the, the perception of him around Pittsburgh would be pretty different. Well, I just think, you know, people look at who, who they brought up and developed and then they and who the trades, and they don't count Jason Grilly. They don't count Michael McHenry, whatever you think of him. They don't count Garrett Jones. And those are guys that were basically given to the Pirates at essentially no cost and and all contributed. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, Wilbur Miller likes to say that, that, you know, the Pirates have had such great opportunities to find those guys because they've had, you know, such glaring holes at the major league level during so much of Neil Huntington's tenure. It's a shame they, they didn't find more of them you know, given that they've had plenty of playing time to distribute. But, you know, give credit for the ones they did get. I mean, McHenry had a really good year. I mean, a really good year. And 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 Jones certainly did as well. Well, uh, he's Charlie. Follow him at Bucks Dugout. And certainly feel free in the comments of this to give your thoughts on the new site and the layout, and whether you like it or what you like and don't like. I don't know that it'll make a big difference, but uh, something that Charlie can take back to people if he needs to. Uh, and I have I have been doing that, by the way. Okay, so all good there. Uh, love to hear people's comments. Feel free to chime in with your thoughts on the season uh, and, and you know our predictions and, and the things we, we messed up on. And you can follow me on Twitter at David M. Todd. Got a show uh, daily on ESPN 970 in Pittsburgh from 2 to 4 p.m. And, of course, my Pirates Twitter account is at DT on Pirates. All right, as always, thanks for listening to the Bucks Dugout Podcast. <laughs>